On Friday, November 17, 1978, at around 11 p.m., the Burger Chef in Speedway, Indiana, closed for the night. Within the hour, its four young employees were taken. Someone forced them out of the restaurant. Someone drove them 20 miles to the south, down a darkened gravel path in the woods. Someone shot, stabbed, and beat the four young people to death, and left their bodies in the cold autumn air. To this day, we still don't know who murdered Jane Freed, Ruth Shelton, Danny Davis, and Mark Flemons. Their families and loved ones still don't have answers, and neither do the law enforcement officers who investigated this case. The Burgershev murders continue to haunt Indiana to this day. I'm Kevin Greenlee, and I'm a lawyer who represents Ruth's sister. I researched this case since 2016. And I'm Anya Kane. I became obsessed with this case when I covered the murders for Insider last year. We've investigated this case together ever since. We've spent hundreds of hours interviewing victims' loved ones, investigators, witnesses, and figures who've been linked to the crime, and traveled as far as Kentucky, Texas, and Minnesota to track down leads. Now we're launching The Murder Sheet, a podcast that takes a definitive look at this complicated case. Each episode of You Never Can Forget, our six-part miniseries focusing on the Burger Chef murders, will delve into a different theory of the crime. Starting November 17th, we're going to take you to the heart of this case. We'll go into the crime scenes. We'll hear about the grief that victims' families still suffer. We'll introduce you to the dangerous men who may have perpetrated the crime. We'll piece together all the bizarre coincidences and twists that have plagued investigators over the years. I'm in, I was in the dark. I'm still in the dark, and I'm not searching for light. It was, it was very frightening for her. And all night long, the whole bed shook because she was just so nervous. I noticed that Jane's car was gone, but the lights were still on inside the burger shop. The, the west side was, was pretty loose. It was the 70s. There was a lot of cocaine, playlists, pot around. And there's this one girl, you know, she made a comment that her mother said they, they all deserved to die. They're doing drugs and all that kind of stuff, and they got what they deserve. Say this on my daughter's grave, that I did see that f***ing van that night, and I seen two guys, and I swear to God, I'll say it over and over again. These aren't just victims. That was my sister. I don't want to forget her. The murder sheet or launch you never can forget on November 17th. Listen to the murder sheet wherever you get your podcasts, And stay updated by following us on social media. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at MurderSheet. And find us on Facebook at MSheetPodcast or by searching MurderSheet. This week's case takes us to West Michigan, the city of Kalamazoo. 
Growing up near Detroit, I haven't spent much time in Kalamazoo. I think we had a couple of scouting events out there when my kids were little. But aside from that, I don't know much about the community. Oddly enough, last weekend, the mister and I were traveling in North Georgia. We rented a cabin and spent the weekend hiking and exploring the outdoors. We stopped in a small shop in a rural community, and I was surprised to see a Kalamazoo brand antique stove as the centerpiece of a display. Seeing Kalamazoo reminded me of this crime, this strange and horrifying unfolding of events which led to so much death and destruction in such a short time. By almost every account, Jason Dalton was as normal as normal gets. He was a white male in his mid-forties, gray-haired, about five foot six inches tall. Dalton worked as an insurance loss adjuster and had this job for many years. He'd been married to the same woman for two decades and they had two children, a 15-year-old son and a 10-year-old daughter. At night, he would drive an Uber to pick up a little extra cash. He wanted to take his family to Disney. You could say that he had a bit of a fascination with guns, but it was a hobby that was picked up after his home had been broken into. And really, he's not that different from the average American gun owner who owns eight guns. However, Jason Dalton was far from ordinary on February 20th, 2016, when he went on a rampage that would leave six dead, two wounded, and a city shocked by what he did in between his attacks. 45-year-old Dalton spent the beginning of February 20th taking his German shepherd, Mia, out for a walk. It was a beautiful winter day. Temps were in the 50s and plenty of people were outside enjoying unseasonably warm weather. His wife and children were also out for the day. After walking the dog, he ran some errands with his friend, Brian. Brian would later say that Dalton was quieter than usual. Quiet enough that Brian asked him if anything was wrong, but Dalton shook him off. When they were finished with their errands, he told Brian that he would catch a nap before work. Though he worked as an insurance adjuster, he often moonlighted in the evenings driving for Uber. When Dalton left the house to start taking Uber fares, he left in his silver Chevy Equinox. And if you aren't familiar, the Equinox is a mid-sized sport utility vehicle. Oddly enough, when he left to start picking up fares, he brought the family dog, Mia, along with him. The first fare he tried to pick up, a female college student, she declined the ride because of the dog. Second fare, a young man named Matt Mellon, he was okay with the presence of a large dog in the car. Mellon was picked up just after 4 p.m. He did think it was a bit weird, the big dog taking up the back seat of the vehicle, but it was a nice afternoon, and he figured that the driver and the dog had been out for a walk. Plus, he liked animals. He climbed into the front seat of the Equinox and accepted the ride. He needed Dalton to take him to downtown Kalamazoo to pick up his car, which he'd left after a birthday party the night before. The two men made small talk. According to Mellon, they didn't talk about anything out of the ordinary. A short while into the ride, Jason received a phone call. He picked it up over Bluetooth, but Mellon didn't pay attention to what was said. A later interview with Dalton's wife would reveal that the rest of the family was out to dinner, and they called to see if Jason wanted them to pick up food for him. It was a short phone call, but as soon as he hung up, Jason Dalton turned into a different man. According to Mellon, quote, He hung up and he floored it. He hammered the gas pedal. He just started driving crazy. 
Dalton sped into oncoming traffic, he ran through a stop sign and then sideswiped another car. Even though his actions were crazy, his affect was calm throughout the entire ordeal. Mellon told the driver, hey, you just hit a car, but Dalton denied it, shrugging him off, and he kept driving. Mellon asked him to stop, to please pull over, just let him out. Dalton, the picture of calm, asked, quote, don't you need a ride to your friend's house? Mellon told him he just wanted out of the car, but Dalton kept driving. By this point, they'd passed the turn into his friend's neighborhood, so Mellon was just pointing out every house they passed, saying, that's, that's the house, you should stop, that's the house. Finally, Dalton slammed on the brakes to ask where his friend lived, and Matt Mellon took the opportunity to jump out of the car. Casey Black was outside having a cigarette with her husband when they saw Matt Mellon tumble out of the vehicle. He looked up at them and told them what had happened. She called 911 to report about the silver Chevy Equinox and the Uber driver tossing a passenger out on the road, but she felt they didn't understand the seriousness of the situation. The operator said, yeah, we'll report it. But in an interview she did with GQ magazine, she said she felt like they didn't believe her. Matt Mellon, he also called 911, and he was transferred three times to different jurisdictions. But each time he spoke to someone, he indicated it was an Uber driver that took him on the ride of his life. He even called his fiancée and told her what had happened. She hopped on Facebook to tell people about the Uber driver named Jason, who drove a silver Chevy Equinox, and that there was something very wrong. He was driving like a madman. After the incident with Matt Mellon, Jason went home. He poured himself a glass of water and then went down to the basement and began loading his arsenal. By the time he was ready to leave, he was carrying a loaded Glock 9mm semi-automatic pistol and he wore a bulletproof vest beneath his clothes. He didn't want to drive around in the damaged Equinox, so he called his wife to meet him to give him the keys to the Hummer, a vehicle that was sitting at his parents' house. Dalton's parents were snowbirds. They wintered in Florida, so their house in Michigan was vacant. Carol Dalton received the call while she was in the parking lot of the local Sam's Club with the children. She said she would meet him at her parents' house. But instead of heading straight there, Jason decided to accept another fare. Armed and wearing a bulletproof vest under street clothes, he started up the Chevy and headed out. Macy, who lived in downtown Kalamazoo, wanted to hang out with her boyfriend, D. Allen Blackburn, an 18-year-old who lived in the Meadows townhomes in northeast Kalamazoo. It was just after five when she called an Uber to pick him up to bring him to her place. Macy accidentally entered the wrong pickup address. She entered the admin office address for the townhomes instead of D. Allen's actual address. So when Jason arrived to pick up D. Allen, he couldn't find him. And to make matters worse, he was looking for Macy, so he was expecting to pick up a young woman. Because of the confusion, Jason called Macy. He asked for directions, and Macy tried to help him. Witnesses from the complex would later say Dalton appeared on edge and was driving aggressively. Dalton made another loop around the townhomes and spotted 25-year-old Tiana Carruthers, who was leading five children, including her daughter, across the grass to the playground. Jason rolled down his window and asked if she was Macy. Tiana said no, and Jason drove off. 
Then he turned back around, took out his semi-automatic pistol, and pointed it at Tiana through his driver's side window. She saw the gun and told the children to run, and she tried to run herself. She was shot four times. The first bullet hit her left arm, the second her right leg. One of the last two bullets broke her other leg, and the final bullet went through her buttocks and lodged in her liver, causing massive internal injuries. As Jason Dalton sped away from the scene, he was certain that he'd killed someone. Somehow, Tiana lived. Several of the shots Dalton fired missed her. Seven went into the house behind her, four of which stopped in a wall of a closet a few feet from where three teenagers were playing video games. Neighbors found Tiana wedged between the curb and the wheel of a truck. She couldn't feel her legs, but she could give them a description of the man who shot her, a heavy-set white man with blue eyes and a dog in the backseat of his vehicle. She had never seen him before in her life. Someone at 911 noticed the similarity between this call and the call from Matt Mellon earlier in the day, but that information either never got passed on or it was disregarded. No one was looking for Jason Dalton and his damaged vehicle. No one was trying to stop him. After shooting Tiana, Dalton raced to his parents' house. He blew through a red light going 80 miles an hour, and for the second time that day, he sideswiped a car. At this point, something strange was happening with the Uber app. It started charging Macy from the Meadows townhomes to his parents' house. She was charged $7.31 for a ride that never took place. Once Dalton arrived at his parents' home, he put the dented Equinox in the garage to hide it from his wife. When she arrived, they discovered that the Hummer wouldn't start, so he instead drove the Chevy HHR that his wife had been driving. He told his wife to stay with the kids at his parents' house. He told her to lock the doors. Instead of questioning the bizarre request, she listened to him and did as he asked. Carol Dalton would later account through her lawyer that her husband was acting strange and told her he'd been shot at by a taxi driver, and that's why he wanted her to stay in the house. He also told her that if she saw something on the news, she would know that it was related to him. Leaving his wife and children at his parents' home, Jason went back to his house. It was about 7 p.m. when his neighbor's daughter saw his car in the driveway. It idled for a few minutes with the lights on. Then it sped down the driveway, stopped for a few seconds, and reversed quickly back up the driveway. Then it parked with the lights on for about five more minutes. No matter what he was doing in the driveway, his trip home had a purpose. The Glock that Jason originally had with him would be found by police in his home, and the gun was jammed. Now, as he headed back out to an unsuspecting Kalamazoo, Jason would be carrying a Walther P99 9mm semi-automatic. He'd abandoned the badly damaged Equinox and was driving his wife's vehicle, a Chevy HHR. If you're not familiar with this vehicle, the HHR is hard to explain. It's similar in size to the Equinox, but it's smaller, and it's more of a large station wagon than an SUV. Out in the city, Jason started picking up fares. At 8.02, he picked up Keith Black at his house near the Western Michigan campus and took him to the center of Kalamazoo. Keith remembered sitting in the passenger seat and making small talk. Another passenger that was picked up later that night remembered Jason singing along to the radio. At 9.21 p.m., he picked up a fare at the Fairfield Inn, 
a motel located next to the Cracker Barrel restaurant. He took three passengers to the beer exchange, a pub and restaurant on Water Street near downtown. Dalton couldn't get the Uber app to work properly, so this fare wasn't charged. But according to that fare, he was very easygoing about the mix-up. His reactions and responses appeared normal to the people he transported that evening. As a heavily armed Jason Dalton is transporting unsuspecting riders across the city, 17-year-old Tyler Smith is excited. He's looking at cars with his girlfriend, 17-year-old Alexis, and his father, Rich. Tyler and Alexis had been looking all day while Rich joined them later in the evening. Tyler and his dad loved cars. But this wasn't just a pleasure trip. They were also looking for a vehicle Tyler could use so the two could go into business together. And at 10 p.m., the three pulled into the Kia dealership on Stadium Drive. Tyler and Rich got out of the car to look at a blue pickup while Alexis, who was tired and disinterested at this point, she stayed behind in their vehicle. What happened next was caught on the showroom's surveillance cameras in multiple angles. Jason pulled up and parked in front of the dealership offices. He approached Tyler and his father, walking past their vehicle and not noticing Alexis at all. The Smiths didn't notice Dalton until he was almost right next to them. Jason would later say he went to the dealership because he wanted to look at a black BMW. When he approached the Smiths, he asked them what they were looking at. As they turned around, he pulled out his gun and began shooting. Alexis heard the shots and ducked down behind the seats. After the bodies fell, Jason walked over to them and shot them some more. Terrified and in shock, Alexis did everything she could to keep from being noticed. When he was done shooting, Jason tried the handle of the black BMW and found it locked. He then walked away, passing by the vehicle again. Alexis could see Jason's shadow move over her as he passed the car. Alexis did not have her phone with her. She waited about a minute and a half before getting out of the car and crawling over to where her boyfriend's body was on the ground near the body of his father. She took his phone from his pocket and ran back to the vehicle. At 10.08 p.m., she dialed 911. Meanwhile, four women, Mary Lou Nye, Mary Jo Nye, Dorothy Brown, and Barbara Hawthorne, as well as 14-year-old Abigail Koff, met up for dinner at Cracker Barrel. Then the five carpooled to see a performance of Chinese acrobatics on campus. Kalamazoo is home to both Kalamazoo Community College and Western Michigan University. Now, a little after 10 p.m., they're headed back to Cracker Barrel to claim their vehicles. They'd carpooled to the performance earlier in the evening. When Dalton approached them on foot, they were in two separate cars. Mary Lou Nye was in one vehicle, and four women were in the other. Jason would later recall walking up to a woman in a white van and asking, quote, Could you spare a dollar to make America great again? When she declined, he shot her in the head. He was about to run away when he heard the screams of the other women in the car next to him. He turned around and shot them as well. It was methodical, first the driver, then the driver's side back passenger, then the front seat passenger, and finally the passenger behind her. Bang, 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 bang. Police would later watch all of this go down on the Cracker Barrel surveillance cameras. This was not as clear as the cameras at the car dealership, but it was clear enough for them to see that the shooter at both locations was the same person. 
and they didn't have much to go on except for what they could discern from the security footage. Soon, the public would be warned about a shooter that was an older white man driving a dark-colored Chevy HHR. After that, police would receive word that all five victims from the Cracker Barrel parking lot were dead on arrival at the hospital. But that wasn't quite right. 14-year-old Abigail, who was shot in the head, she had her time of death called. Her mother, Vicky, came in to see and embrace her daughter one last time and was shocked to hear a heartbeat. She called for medical staff who resumed work on the girl who had already been pronounced deceased. Abby Kauf would later come to symbolize a sort of miracle, something for the residents of Kalamazoo to cling to in the dark times following the killing spree. According to a report by ABC News, Barbara Hawthorne, who'd invited young Abigail out with a group of women that night, she pushed Abby aside when shots started. Hawthorne also spoke to the first responders about Abigail so her family could be contacted. While Hawthorne would not survive her injuries, her actions likely saved Abby's life and allowed her parents to come to the hospital immediately following the shooting. After shooting five women in the Cracker Barrel parking lot, Jason drove 16 miles back to his home. Around 11.20 p.m., Jason's neighbor, Jim Block, he heard four shotgun blasts come from his neighbor's property. Jason, for reasons unknown, had fired four shots into his garden shed. With that strange errand complete, Jason headed back into the night. He left the shotgun but took with him the Walther 9mm and 20 new rounds. And again, it's hard to believe, but Dalton began picking up Uber fares. For a few dollars a ride, he was shuttling people back and forth around bars in downtown Kalamazoo. At 11.30, he accepted a fare from 19-year-old college student Nick. Nick couldn't find the car due to not sending the right location, so he called Jason. Then, 28 minutes later, Nick received a notification from Uber that his ride was canceled and he was charged a $5 cancellation fee. When he called Jason to complain, Jason replied, Oh, just report it to Uber, okay? Bye. At 12.04 a.m., Jason picked up three friends who wanted to be taken to the Western Michigan University dorms. They had to direct Jason how to get there and didn't think he was very sociable. The trip, however, was uneventful, and Jason dropped them off. Derek, a law student from Indianapolis, he was finishing up his night at Bell's Eccentric Cafe. He'd driven up earlier with his wife and in-laws to watch his brother-in-law's band perform. They were only a few blocks away from the hotel, and they would have walked, but they heard some news that stopped them from setting out on foot. There was an active shooter on the loose. So, wanting to be safe, Derek hired an Uber. They were to be picked up by Jason in a silver Chevy Equinox. Shortly after he made the request, Jason called and said, watch out for a black HHR, not the silver Chevy. And at 12.12 a.m., Jason pulled up. Derek got in front while his wife and in-laws got in the back. Derek started the conversation by asking Jason if he heard about what was going on. Jason said that he had. Derek felt the whole conversation was awkward. He was trying to lighten the mood and said, you're not the shooter, are you? No. Jason replied. It was such a curt, short answer that Derek asked again, Are you sure? No, I'm just tired, was Jason's reply. He told them he'd been driving for seven hours. 
The two men then had a normal conversation, something that Derek said he often tried to do with Uber drivers in order to make the ride less awkward. Jason dropped them off a few minutes later, though once again Jason's app kept charging Derek as Jason drove off down Portage Street. Mark Dunton was out with a couple of friends at Central City Tap House when they decided to go to a different place, the Up and Under. It was only a few blocks, but it was cold, so they decided to call an Uber. Jason accepted the fare at 12.26 a.m. Mark and his friends knew the specifics of the police warning and knew what to look out for, so when they saw their driver match the description of who to look out for, they were hesitant. But then he thought, if the driver was really the shooter, would he be out picking up fares? Of course not. So Mark accepted the ride. Nevertheless, he made sure to ask if Jason was the shooter. Jason responded, wow, that's crazy. No, no way. I'm not that guy. Jason would later say that he thought the guys were mocking him. He even thought that he might shoot them, but he didn't, and he dropped them off without incident. Mallory Lemieux was having a mother-daughter night, and she was having a great time when she realized her father had been texting and calling since the last bar she'd been at. She ducked into the bathroom to return his call, and that's when she learned about a shooter who was on the loose. Her father told her to be on the lookout for an older man driving a Chevy HHR. The group of women decided to hit one more spot, the Wild Bull, and then call it a night. Mallory's father grew increasingly worried, and by this time, her phone wasn't the only one in the group that was buzzing. Everyone was concerned. So Mallory decided to call an Uber to go home. At 12.33 a.m., her request was accepted by Jason. Mallory saw his information and saw that he was driving a Chevy Equinox. It did not matter to her that her father said the madman was driving an HHR. The fact that it was a Chevy? That's too close for comfort. So she canceled the ride. She tried again for another driver. Again, she got Jason. Again, she canceled. And at this point, Sergeant James Harrison is cruising the area looking for a dark-colored HHR driven by an older man. Sergeant Harrison didn't normally work in the city, but he'd been called in to work a shooting that turned out to be a false alarm. Since he was already there, he decided to join the rest of the officers in town to find the shooter that was terrorizing Kalamazoo. When he saw the HHR outside the Wild Bull, he thought he may have his man. But Harrison was worried. There were 30 or 40 people outside the bar, so he followed the car, hoping the worst would not occur. Sergeant Harrison didn't know that the shooter was an Uber driver, but he did think the shooter would be out and about in crowded areas looking for victims. Meanwhile, Mallory is trying again to get a different Uber driver, but again she got Jason, and she noticed something odd this time. The car icon wasn't moving toward her on the map. In fact, it wasn't moving at all. It didn't matter to her. She wasn't going anywhere near an older man in a Chevy that night. So she again canceled the ride. It was 12.38 a.m. Sergeant Harrison is now joined by Sergeant Scott Miller in pursuit of Jason Dalton. Jason, instead of heading deeper into downtown, began heading north. Then he took a right onto Ransom Street. He is now in the quieter industrial and business district northeast of downtown Kalamazoo. At 12.37, Sergeant Harrison made his stop a few hundred yards from where Mallory was going to cancel her ride for the third and final time. He flipped on his lights for a felony stop. Jason Dalton pulled over quickly. 
the two police cars pulled in behind him and ordered him to put his hands out the window. Dalton obeyed. At 12.38, Sergeant Harrison, covered by Sergeant Miller, slowly walked toward the vehicle with his gun drawn. As he approached Dalton, he grabbed his wrists. Sergeant Miller asked Jason if he had anything on him, but Jason stayed silent, staring straight ahead. Sergeant Harrison patted him down and found the loaded pistol in Jason's pocket. Gun, he shouted as he placed it on the roof of the car. Then Dalton was handcuffed and placed in Sergeant Harrison's police vehicle. He was then taken to the local police station. When he arrived at the police station, Jason wasn't talking. Every question thrown at him was met with either silence or a request for a lawyer. His face was blank, his demeanor hard to discern. He showed little emotion and absolutely no remorse. No matter, the police would keep asking questions of Jason Dalton. Two days later, the public got their first look at Jason Dalton. He was live-streamed from jail to the courtroom and read his charges. The process took about ten minutes. The judge asked Jason if he had anything to say, and he responded, quote, I would prefer just to remain silent. And his silence would drive people insane, because something this horrific needed an explanation. There were six people dead and two people injured. Silence was the last thing people expected out of someone who committed such a loud act. In the place of silence, people did what people do best. They filled the void with noise. There were all sorts of theories as to why Jason did what he did. Mental illness, sexual frustration, hunger, high levels of lead in his blood, a brain tumor, Chantix anti-smoking pills, money problems, Donald Trump, Barack Obama, too many guns in America, too few guns in America, Uber and the Illuminati were just some of the theories people spouted. Reporters dug deep into Jason's life to try and find an answer as to why he did these things. Neighbors reported hearing Jason firing guns out in his backyard, which really isn't out of the ordinary for someone who has a gun hobby, but it becomes extraordinary when they go on a killing spree. Another produced a story about Jason that seemed to hint of a man with a darker personality under a normally sweet demeanor. One of his old co-workers said Jason didn't like to be challenged by customers and would sometimes hang up the phone in anger and then pace the office fuming. If this were normal of Jason's character, wouldn't more people have run to the papers with similar stories? Something else brought up were the errands that Jason ran with his friend Brian before the shootings. They went to three gun stores that day, and one of the things Jason bought was an $85 tactical vest with a pocket for concealing a handgun. Again, this isn't out of the ordinary for Jason and Brian. They were regulars at these stores, and Jason's manner at the store that day was described as happy and joking. While some pointed to the purchase as proof that the killings were methodically planned, the tactical jacket he bought was later found by his wife at the house, with the tags still on it. He'd never worn the jacket. When the press interviewed people who knew Jason, they described him as a perfectly normal guy with nothing outstanding about him. They were shocked at what they heard on the news. It couldn't have been Jason, not the Jason Dalton that I know. And Carol, Jason's wife, she couldn't believe what she heard. She immediately moved herself and the kids away from the house she shared with her husband for 17 years. She also filed for divorce. She hired a lawyer and spoke to the media through that lawyer. Smart lady. 
She did everything she could to separate herself and the children from what Jason had done. Three weeks after the shootings, the police released accounts of the two formal interviews with Jason during his first day in custody. They'd been implying that Jason didn't explain the shootings, but that wasn't entirely true. Maybe they just didn't buy his explanation, and maybe they didn't believe him at all. But what Jason said is that he'd opened the Uber app, and the Eastern Star symbol would appear next to a devil head. If you aren't familiar with it, the Eastern Star is most commonly associated with Freemasonry. The Order of the Eastern Star is a Freemason group open to both men and women, and the symbol of the star represents women from the Bible, including Ruth and Esther. And listeners, I'm giving you just the barest overview here. I looked it up, and honestly, I find the whole thing confusing. But in short, the Eastern Star is a predominantly Christian religious symbol. So when that happened, when the Eastern Star and the Devil had appeared, his iPhone would take over, controlling him, controlling Jason Dalton. And when the icon changed from red to black, that's when he was fully taken over. And that's why he was able to drive so fast and blow through stop signs. That's also why he committed the murders. In fact, Jason was going to shoot Sergeant Harrison, the cop that pulled him over and took him into custody, but the Uber icon changed colors again, so he took his hand off the gun and allowed himself to be arrested. But to be clear, Jason Dalton didn't offer this confession up freely. In fact, he refused to say anything, or he pled the fifth 22 times before blurting out this story about a devil's head in the Eastern Star. Dalton was cooperative in every sense of the word, except for when it came to an explanation for why he committed the murders, until he offered this explanation. It was clear to investigators that Jason didn't want to give this explanation because he understood how crazy it sounded. His court-appointed lawyer applied for a competency test to see if Dalton was competent to stand trial. The psychologist said that he was sane enough to stand trial, despite hearing Jason's explanation about the Uber app taking over his mind. At a pretrial hearing, while Tiana was on the stand, Jason interrupted her testimony with an outburst. No, he exclaimed. They gave bags, these old people. They have these old black bags that are called, they're black, and they're black bags that people drive around and people look at them and it gets real bad. It's time people look and that's when they tell the people it's time to get to Temple. Dalton looked as though he was trying to break out of his restraints, and he repeatedly shouted, Take! at Tiana while jabbing his right forefinger at her in a way that looked like someone firing a gun. Tiana burst into tears. Jason's limp body had to be dragged from the courtroom. He was next seen in a video link with two law enforcement officers, one on each side of him with a hand on each shoulder. We may never know the reason why Jason Dalton did these horrible things or why he allowed some people to live yet targeted others specifically for violence. As much as the media tried to answer the why of everything, the Kalamazoo media especially focused on the victims of the crime. After Tyler Smith was killed, Robin Buckler, the superintendent of Matawan Consolidated Schools where Tyler was a senior, she vowed to do all she could for the students who knew Tyler to help them process their feelings. A crisis consultant team was brought in to help the students, quote, continue to believe in the world and the adults and that they can be safe in this, in this town, according to Robin. She said she knew it would be a challenge, but reassuring the students of their safety was her number one priority. 
Tyler was a good student. He was taking marketing classes at the Van Buren Technical Center. He also played organized soccer and refereed for other games. His former soccer coach said he was a talented player with a penchant for offensive positions. Tyler's mother, Richard's wife, she wrote the most heartbreaking posts on Facebook about her losses. She described her husband as her rock and her son as a blessing. She said she was lost without them. The community rallied behind her and donated money via a GoFundMe to help pay for funeral costs. Tyler's father, Richard Smith, was the husband of Lori and father to Emily and Tyler. He was 53 years old and a pipe fitter by trade. He was looking forward to working with his son someday, thus the reason for them to be out car shopping that night. Mary Jo Nye, she was 60 years old and a former teacher at Calhoun Community High School. She taught English at the Alternative High School and was an integral part of founding the school by working on its original charter. Even after she retired, four years before her death, she still attended graduation every year. Mary Jo was also a board member of the Haven of Rest Ministries. Her sister-in-law, Mary Lou Nye, lived with her husband Chris on a property that was surrounded by his family's farmland. They were living in a camper while their home, damaged by a tornado, was being fixed. Mary Lou had two sons, though one died at a young age due to a heart problem. Despite any hardship she went through, Mary Lou always had a positive outlook on life. Dorothy Brown, who went by Judy, she grew herbs in her Battle Creek home garden and shared the wealth with her neighbors. She was always driving to the mall where she would walk for exercise. She had two grown sons, one in California and one in Florida. 68-year-old Barbara Hawthorne was sitting in the back passenger seat when she was gunned down by Jason. She was a resident of Battle Creek who worked for the Kellogg Company for 22 years. Those are the people that make cereal. She retired in 2008, and Barbara was very special to survivor Abigail Koff, who, despite not being related, referred to Barbara as her grandmother. And Abigail's story of survival was something citizens could cling to as a story of hope among the carnage that Jason wrought. Brought back from death, Abigail's recovery was a tough one, a recovery marked with lots of gains and setbacks. At one point, an incision in her head became so infected with MRSA bacteria that doctors had to remove a plastic plate that had been shielding her skull after part of it was removed. A new plate was inserted, and she continued her recovery. Though she will suffer from health problems for the rest of her life, her memory, particularly of her childhood and, of course, the night of the shooting, is largely blank. Still, she's managed to get herself out of the hospital and attended school and events like homecoming. The brave story of Tiana Carruthers touched the hearts of Kalamazoo residents. Tiana was hailed as a hero, especially by her neighbors as she put the safety of the children before her own, suffering terrible injuries that she still struggles with. Once Tiana was healthy, there was a gathering in her honor at a local park led by families whose children she protected. Tiana suffered a lot of damage from her gunshots especially from the bullet that broke her leg. Her recovery was long and arduous, but eventually she was able to walk again without assistance. One thing that Tiana and Abigail have in common are the emotional scars that stay with them to this day, and those may be the toughest wounds to heal. On January 7, 2019, Jason Dalton pled guilty to all counts against him, including six counts of first-degree murder. 
It's yet another extraordinary thing about this story. On February 5th, 2019, Dalton was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He currently resides at the Oaks Correctional Facility in Manistee, Michigan. This week's episode was written by Brittany Martinez, with audio production for Already Gone provided by Gray Multimedia. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. Be safe.